Okay, welcome to the uh, second in a very occasional series of uh, podcasts from Active Learning and Political Science. Uh, I'm Simon Ashwood from the University of Surrey. Amanda Rosen from Webster University. And uh, today we are in beautiful, uh, if slightly murky, uh, Hong Kong. Um, we're here doing workshop with colleagues at City University of Hong Kong on active learning in the curriculum and on simulation game design. Um, and this is something that we've been uh, offering on our website, which is activelearningps.com. Um, and if you go there, you can find out uh, all the information about what we offer. And uh, we are happy to travel uh, literally anywhere in the world. <laughs> um, so uh, yes, this is uh, uh, our Asian uh, adventure. Uh, it's gone very well. We're just uh, we've done the active learning uh, workshop yesterday, which uh, I think we had some really good discussions with colleagues there. Yeah, it was great. It really was. So and then this afternoon we're going to be doing the simulation design with them. So if you do want to find out more and you want to uh, see about uh, getting. Uh, one or more of us to come and talk to you, uh, talk with you. Uh, Help you design simulations or work on incorporating active learning into your classes. Or any of the uh, other topics that, that we offer workshops on, then do just drop us a line and we'll be happy to see what we can do. One of the things that, that came out of yesterday's discussion, uh, which we found particularly interesting, uh, is the idea of uh, institutional constraints. Now, a really interesting thing about being here in Hong Kong is that you've got a bit of a mix of different models. There are things I recognise from the British system. Certainly, I know you, Amanda, was yeah, certainly lots of uh, American style things, and also some other stuff that's kind of unfamiliar to both of us. So, just kind of talking a little bit about how you deal with institutional constraints and how we see that working. I don't know right. if you've got. Yeah, um, I think one of the things that strikes me is to remember. When we are planning our teaching, our classes, our lessons, uh, we often are doing it in a vacuum of what we think is best to teach a particular set of content. Um, but the real challenge can be our students and understanding our students. And so anyone who's taught in different uh, universities and different environments knows the students can be very different and the same activities or lessons that work really well with one set of students might not work so well with another. I think sometimes that sort of constraint appears in, well, I teach classes that are no bigger than 25, while someone at another institution, 25 might be the minimum and 100 is more normal. And that means there's going to be different things that I can do than they can do. But it also comes down to what your students expect in the classroom. That if you have students that expect to sit passively and listen to lecture, and that's how they're used to learning, it can be very difficult to bring in some of the techniques that we like to use. Uh, and the students can be hostile to such efforts and, and not want to engage and interact and talk and, and play games. And then you have other students that might be quite the opposite and are much more receptive. And so I think understanding a little bit more about the students that we're teaching is really crucial mm. um, when we're planning. But at the same time, it was interesting just kind of the discussion we, we were having with, with people at the workshop. And, you know, they're talking about, you know, where you've got to understand our students are different or, you know, there's particular sets of problems. And when we were unpacking that, actually, there wasn't really anything that I felt was unfamiliar to me from my own institution or you know you from yours that actually that you know we often think you know we've got particular problems or particular difficulties but often those things are a lot more universal than we realize mm -hmm. and 
I know one of the the challenges that the the team at uh, at City were talking about was this difficulty that uh, there's a kind of culture of uh, rote learning in schools, and so uh, they find it very hard to get students to engage with the kind of active learning opportunities or even the kind of more conventional sort of seminar discussion kind of thing that uh, that you find in a university setting. But at the same time, I think, you know, we have a similar kind of situation in the UK and the US that students are are kind of used to being uh, spoon-fed or just kind of given it on a plate, you know, and told what they need to write to get a good mark in the exam. And then uh, they find it quite difficult to make that transition into a university kind of setting. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know what what your take on that was, you know, about how, how, you know, are the commonalities stronger than the, the differences? Yeah, I think they are, and I think that it can be easy to also to point to institutional challenges as reasons not to try or to expect failure. And I think we all tend to be afraid of failing. You know, that as instructors, if you go before a class with a lecture, you can plan everything in advance and you're entirely in control of the classroom, where if you try to do a game, it might fail, it might go wrong. And I think part of it is about being okay with that, being comfortable with failing in front of your students and turning that into a learning uh, moment. Um, and and potentially changing what they expect from the classroom in order to provoke them into learning more. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean I do think that what's common is that everyone faces institutional constraints, right? But that doesn't they're just constraints. That doesn't mean that they're barriers that can't be crossed. Um, what do you think about uh, the solutions are to when you're dealing with students that are sort of more hostile to interaction? I think, well, I think there's two things. One is how you present the interaction, that it's easy, and I think we saw that a little bit in our, in our discussion, that sometimes, you know, the sort of thing is you've got to go, if you're going in, you're going all in on active learning, and somehow you've got to change everything you do and you know, you completely rewrite it. And you know, I think we, we were talking a lot about saying, well, you can actually do small things, little things that introduce ideas, get them comfortable, sort of, Right. Frog boiling kind of approach, you know, that you say, let's do this little thing. It's nothing big, nothing complicated, no stress, no craids attached to it, no credit, just a, a bit of fun, you know, and kind of get them used to the idea and then start doing a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And something like that, I think, is actually a very good way of saying, it's okay, it's not something terrible and vast. Mm-hmm. It is something that we're going to support you with. Um, going to lead you into it so we're not just going to say uh drop you in at the very deep end um so i think that there's a structuring issue there that kind of local level it's also about the situation of that within the broader context that you know if i think about my institutional setting we're quite lucky that we have a lot of different practices going on so you know from day one students are exposed to a range of things and so they they kind of expect that things might be different. There's not going to be a set pattern of how we do a course or we do a module. So there's kind of environmentally you can say, well, you know, sometimes we do it one way, sometimes we do another. And then they're more, you know, we find that students are quite happy to say, okay, well, we haven't done this before, but all the other kind of things we've done, they've broadly worked or they have worked and right, we can go from there. You are establishing norms, right? So yeah. you're, you know, if your department uses all these different techniques, so with your students in your program, you're establishing these norms of we're not going to just have lecture, we are going to be 
uh, using these different techniques. And I think that that's really crucial. I think if, let's say you want to run a two-week-long simulation of the European Union or NATO or Mali United Nations, something like that, if you've not done any sort of preparation with your students for that kind of activity, then it is harder. I think it's a lot harder, and I think the students don't feel comfortable. They don't know what to do. Same thing where if you lecture straight and then in week three or four suddenly start asking questions or getting or wanting discussion and no one talks, part of the problem is is that you've not sort of prepared your students for that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that. It's, that, it's this idea of just assuming that you can impose any teaching technique on your students and that they're going to respond the way you want is not sort of recognizing what's going on with your students and their... Exactly. You know, and just thinking about something that you've seen with my teaching when you came to, to Surrey, you came sort of mid-semester and the session you, you saw me do was my empty room game, which I've talked about on uh, the website on the, in a couple of blog posts, where basically I cleared the room of furniture, push it all to one side, say to students, in you come, and then I sit in the corner and do literally nothing. Don't respond to being prodded, people looking in my bag at what there is. Don't uh, answer any questions. Don't answer any questions. I'm be totally nothing. And then they kind of do whatever it is they do, and then... We kind of talk about it afterwards. Now, if I'd done that as the very first exercise in the class, yeah, I would expect students to have a real problem with it. I had quite a big problem with it at the time, but they at least had had several weeks of doing different kind of games, different kind of things, and they were much more ready to kind of roll with it, you know, and the discussion ended up being, well, Simon obviously wants us to do something, so what's he trying to go do, what, you know, and so they kind of constructed something, you know, so they kind of bought into the logic of why this situation might exist rather than just saying, ah. Right. So I think it's the same, you know, that in anything you, you want to take people through and, you know, if you were wanting to do a two-week simulation of the EU, I don't know why you would, but, uh, you know, you'd want to do some, some people you, want to learn you know, and, you know, so for big games you do, you'd have preparatory exercises you know, you'd necessarily need that. Even if your students did know about the EU uh, or about simulations, you'd still say, well, we need to do some particular prep because this is a big thing and we, we could have rolled into it. So, right. this, I, yeah. But I don't think it means that you can't try something just because you've, you know, in the middle of the semester. It's just, I think it's about recognizing that your students, it may not be that they're hostile to these sorts of activities, but that they're not, they haven't been warmed up in essence, that they're not sort of expecting it. They're worried about their social relationships in the room, about looking foolish in front of their peers or in front of you, or some of them may just aren't sure what you want of them and they're trying to please. I think there's a lot of those sorts of dynamics going on, um, but that that's okay. I think as long as you know that those are potentially there, you can choose a game or construct a game that um, where you're taking that into account. And I think that really kind of takes this sort of second big theme, which is about the connection of the different elements that, you know, often we say, well, let's do a game, you know, and I, I think we find that a lot with simulation games. It's sort of, we both know colleagues, and I'm sure listeners can also think of colleagues uh, who say, oh yeah, I've got my, it's the last week of the, the course, I can't, I've done all the things I think constantly, I'll, do a simulation game and it'd be a bit of fun and you know it's a bit like the last week of school where you know you can bring in your board games and uh you have dressed down and you know you can just have a bit of fun and it's not really proper teaching and things like that and it's a similar kind of thing that often we, these things get tacked on 
and don't really have any connection to the rest of what there is. And I think one of the things for me was interesting, which I hadn't really thought about before from yesterday's kind of discussion about active learning and curriculum, is whatever you're doing, you've got to make sure that those connections are there, that mm-hmm. there are those linkages between the different elements. So it's, if you're doing stuff online, good, but you've really got to talk about it in the class so that they know that you're engaged in it. And even if you're participating in the online discussions, you still need to say, okay, in class. You know when we talked about this online, well, blah, blah, blah. And likewise, no, in class we did that, let's talk about that in this kind of way there. So Because right, yeah. otherwise you... You end up with students who sort of are confronted with a list, kind of list of activities they've got to do, and they're like, "Okay, but why am I doing this? Right, How does that fit with that?" This is really important because I think sometimes we assume that students see the connections, that they're reading whatever text we've provided for them, and we don't need to talk about it in class because it's connected to what we're talking about in class, and we just assume they see those connections, or we play a game uh, or show them a video, and we just then move on and we don't debrief them on it or ask them to build these connections. And I think that that's often a mistake because students, some students are going to see the connections without having that moment of reflection, but other students are not. Um, And you can't just say, do you guys understand that and see the few nodding heads because the students that don't understand are not going to shake their head no or raise their hand. You have to sort of assume that their students are not going to see those connections and build them for them. Um, I do think that that's really important. It's one reason why when we talk about games and simulations, we talk about how important it is to both have a learning objective for the game and then also to debrief the game, that you can't just sit them down and have them play Diplomacy or Monopoly or something like that and expect them to understand how that was in any way relevant to the material. Otherwise, it's just a game. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And so, uh, again, the, the value of it is is enhanced by the, the engagement with the broader process. And again, that comes down to, as you say, learning objectives, that if you don't know what you're trying to achieve with your, your students, then how can you know that what you're doing is actually getting you towards that, that, that goal? And I think it's kind of easy to overlook that. I know so I've had to write a lot of kind of course descriptions over the years, and uh, when I was doing this ICD job, looking at you know, kind of literally hundreds thousands of these things and it's always kind of a bit dirge like you know the student will become (laughs) like this or learn how to do that and it all feels rather worthy or kind of I'm doing it because somebody's made me fill out a form but the point actually is is a useful one that you need to be clear about what the purpose of the the class is the course Um, you know and that operates at those different levels whether we're talking about an individual session all the way up to a, a full degree that you, if you're not clear about the the objective then working towards it is that much more difficult and also it gives you a way of hanging together the different elements mm-hmm. that you know you can say you know if we're thinking about kind of having a diverse set of learning environments you can say well look all these things build into this objective but they're coming at it different ways and by doing that we kind of help reinforce some points and help you contextualize and understand right. kind of the nuances that are there that I can't do in if I just do it one way. Right. And I think then students often have different points to jump off of when they're trying to understand that content, you know, when they're studying or things like that, that they, it's not just the reading or just the game, or the video that they watch, but that they're able to sort of 
pull certain aspects of it from one uh, medium and, and connect it to others, I think is, is, is what's valuable about trying different techniques and not necessarily mm. assuming that, you know, I mean, just like, you, you know, lecture, you say something once and then you assume the students know that piece of information and then you're surprised later that they don't. Um, yeah. Reinforcing those lessons is key and I think reinforcing them through the use of different mediums uh, can, be, can be really helpful. Oh, I agree. Um, yeah. Maybe uh, a, a last area that, that just kind of comes from that is just about how much hand-holding, you know, it kind of comes from that, is how much hand-holding do we do for students? Because uh, just kind of, you sort of think about, you know, we, we kind of often find ourselves caught in the Hornsville dilemma that we want students to become independent learners, that, you know, they've got to discover this for themselves and that will make it a more... Uh, rich and powerful learning experience but at the same time we, we worry that if we don't give them the stuff then you know they won't have the stuff that they can't you know so we, we kind of end up giving them a whole load of stuff that probably we shouldn't give them uh, if we're kind of being true to the sort of kind of discovery how do, how do you balance those different elements? Yeah I think that's a, that's a really important question a lot of what we hear from people that are sort of more skeptical of games and simulations are worries about, well, there's certain content that you need to cover, and if you do games and simulations and you're not covering that content. And from another perspective, you hear um, arguments that, you know, our job is not just to disperse facts, but to teach students how to go find facts. And I think that there, there's a lot of trade-offs there, right? Because students need should know certain basic facts, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in American politics, you, know, you should be able to name certain figures, like perhaps your senators, um, the president, the vice president. And there's lots of people that can't necessarily do that. And so that's the thing is, yeah, you may know how to Google who the president is, but you should probably know that off the top of your head. So there's some there's definitely an argument to be made that there are certain things that they need to know. Um, but then there's another argument to be made that once they leave your classroom, they need to know how to find other information. And so I think there needs to be a balance there between imparting facts and helping students to how to learn those facts, but then giving them the skills they need so that they know how to do it on their own. But also how to integrate new knowledge into what they already know. So right. you know, kind of that scaffolding of their own understanding, how you build out from what you know to what you don't yet know is is also part of that, that right. you know the, the kind of the, the the mind mapping if you like of, of what there is that you know at some point you you know if we assume that kind of learning is by analogy you know is this thing that i've never encountered before like something else that i know and being able to kind of translate across right uh, the knowledge you know just thinking about uh, some of the discussions we were having in preparing for these workshops you were saying you didn't really know much about chinese politics uh, and so how you go about doing that, you know, we kind of got some stuff together and then it's like, how do you integrate that into your model of way states work mm -hmm. and, you know, what do you know about dictators, not dictatorships, but authoritarian regimes, about communism, about, you know, how the, the kind of models work. So, again, that, there's that kind of intermediate part, which is kind of a mixture of facts, but also right. about strategies, which is about the models for the integration. Of the right, and it also raises questions about how we approach programs and curriculums because there's an issue where we certain sometimes we have classes where they learn particular skills in a class 
but then and then they go into their content or substantive course I'm thinking here particularly research methods because mm -hmm. I teach research methods a lot so your students take research methods and then they have their other substantive classes that don't necessarily reinforce the lessons from from research methods and then there's sort of the surprise that oh these students don't know how to do these things well they may have learned it in methods but if it even no matter how many times they practice a skill in methods if once they leave that course they have no reason to practice that skill it it's going Atrophies. to atrophy yeah. So I think part of it is about having a conversation with our colleagues to make sure that if we are all in agreement about certain skills um, being useful, then making sure that we're reinforcing those skills at multiple points in the curriculum so that by the time the students graduate, maybe not by the time the end of this class, but by the time the students graduate, they are better at this balance um, than they might otherwise have been. Which kind of brings us back to where we started with institutional constraints. You know, I'm thinking <laughs> I have a great advantage in the UK that my program of my you know my students I know are on named programs that have defined structures whereas you've got students who are coming in you know doing majors mm -hmm. who are, you know kind of they might be doing any number of other things and so the mix that you have you know it's a bit like here in Hong Kong as well that the mix of students and the mix of courses that they take might be very very broad right. and, you know in many cases unique kind of combinations whereas no, I, I've got a, a fixed set, and I, I can do a lot of those kind of things. Yeah, together. well, there, there's an, this interesting tension in the American model where instructors often have a lot of control over their classes. And so if you're going to introduce something where we agree that in the curriculum we're going to have research methods, and then in your international political economy class you must do a unit where it's um, working on hypothesis generation, well, that infringes on the freedom of the faculty member that teaches that class. And so, so there's this trade-off of, well, we might want to have a more structured curriculum where we ensure that certain skills are being reinforced in all classes, sort of a writing across the curriculum model or any of these sorts of uh, models where the, the skills are embedded in multiple classes. But then the instructor loses the freedom to do what they want to do with that class. And so I think that, that that's a real challenge in the American style of doing something like that. You have to kind of have agreement amongst all the people that teach those classes that that's a direction you all agree to go in. So the, the conclusion then is that economists are right and there are no free lunches, that there's always a trade-off. We know things. we're not allowed to admit that economists are right. right we, we give them the one thing, <laughs> otherwise right. they'll get even we more moody than they already are. We won't have our conversation about sunk costs again. No, we won't. <laughs> uh, we're going to go off now and uh, go and do our other workshop, but we hope you've found that useful. If you want to know more about uh, our work, uh, our website, once again, is activelearningps.com, or one word, apart from the .com bit. Uh, <laughs> check out uh, our blogs. We've written uh, already one blog uh, about this. There's going to be some more that we'll, we'll do, probably on planes back. Yeah. Uh, on a very, very long flights very back long home. Flights. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, meeting you next time when we do a podcast. We've got a whole series of things coming up. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, American contingent are coming over to Surrey in the UK uh, next month in mm -hmm. May, and there'll be uh, details of that session uh, going up very soon in the next week. Uh, and if you're in the UK or in Europe, you're very welcome uh, to come. Actually, wherever you are, you're welcome to come. We've got so. uh, Victor Saul and Nina Collars from the Alps team are going to be doing a workshop at the American Political Science Association's annual meeting in Philadelphia in um, the fall. And then there's going to be in the UK, uh, there's going to be the PSA and Visas Learning and Teaching events in September. There's also going to be the Euro uh, Learning and Teaching Conference in Brussels in June. 
which is going to be a really good uh, event. So if you are interested in that, we can put some details up about uh, attending that. So a lot of uh, great activities, uh, you know, not much in the way of panel discussions, but uh, a lot of uh, toing and froing. So if you're interested in all these things, uh, the website's the place to go. And uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, thank you. Bye.